podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Like this podcast? Why not try Double Century, my podcast on the history of cricket? Want to know why England's first test keeper was in jail? Or the moment when we learned to hit the ball over our heads? Find Double Century in all of your greatest podcast apps. This week on Red Inca, we talk T20 and the evolution of cricket's fastest moving creature with this guy. Hi, I'm Tim Wigmore. I'm a cricket writer for the Daily Telegraph. Wigmore and Freddie Wilde wrote Cricket 2.0, and it's such a good book at looking at how the game was built and where it's going. In this chat, Wigmore and I talk about drugs, bowlers, IPL strategies, and the rise of the West Indies. Wigmore, you're here today to talk about your book, Cricket 2.0. I think we need to, from an open, honest start, we need to say that this was originally a book I was supposed to write with you until I realized that I would have to spend a lot of time with you and converse with you a lot. And the idea of that made me feel very sick. And luckily for you, you got a better writing partner in and Freddie Wilde to come in and put it all together. But why on earth did you want to write this book in the first place? Well, yeah, I think it worked out for the best for both of us, Jared. Um, I, yeah, I guess I, was, I wanted to write it because T20, the most popular form of cricket, and no one really kind of understood it. I mean, we knew the kind of what it meant for test cricket kind of stuff. Maybe not even that well, but we didn't really know anything much about the game itself, how it was played, the ways it was played, how it had evolved, all the kind of basic stuff. And so it was a bit of trying to write what we wanted to read, I guess. And initially, it was quite hard to get a deal for this because publishers were saying, well, can you show us the evidence that there's a market for T20 books? And it was like, well, there aren't any T20 books. <laughs> that was quite a, a process to, to get that deal. There's a kind of definitely a conservatism in cricket writing really where a lot of it is kind of producing the the same books for the same type of audience yeah we just wanted to do something something different really weirdly if you'd wanted to write a book about yorkshire club cricket you probably would have had a bidding war from all the different people who yeah or another book on wg grace yeah i remember um talking to a cricket publisher years ago about this and just being like if you keep publishing the same books for the same three thousand readers who buy them you're never actually going to build a bigger industry of cricket writing, and then you'll say that new things won't work. And it seems to be that that's what we've done. So it's an interesting one. Also, this is a very analytics book. And to be fair, you're not really an analytics guy. I know that you write that way. You know, Telegraph have a deal with CrickViz, and you've always been interested in it. But I wouldn't say that you are, you're not like me, you're not building your own databases or your own algorithms or anything, are you? Well, we've got Freddie Wild from CrickViz. He could use their algorithm and so, and so on. I guess both of us together was actually quite an interesting kind of mix of people. So in terms of, I'm a sort of journalist. So for things like impacts of, of drugs on cricket and all that sort of stuff, that was something that probably Freddie couldn't write. And he had stats that I could not find without him being part of CrickViz. So I think actually together, we probably wrote a book that was stronger than one that we've written in independently. So I think it worked quite well, that process. And yeah, we think it's better than if we've written it both independently. It's not Moneyball type book in that it's not really talking about one specific issue. It's not like a Michael Lewis book or anything like that. It's more like a collection of essays on different parts of T20. Is that just because you couldn't find anything strong enough within one team or one player? And Which is completely fair because um, T20 cricket is a kind of a weird... It's got, you know, little pop-up leagues around the world and the IPL isn't even as big as it perhaps could be and because of the length of it, you know, all those sorts of things. Is that why it's essays rather than, you know, one big story? 
Yeah, I think the thing to say is that we could have written this book in a dozen different ways and you know, they might have been as good, they might have been better than, than what we did. I mean, it's not just a history, it's a sort of an account of how it's changed cricket, looking at basically the philosophy of, of playing, the, the various skills involved, the impact of the IPL, you know, why teams wouldn't lose with that chapter on Chennai and Bangalore. So there's like lots of different ways we could do it. I think we're happy with, with how we did do it. But it gives a real snapshot of the various aspects of, of T20. And we didn't want to write a book about wins and losses. That is boring. Or we, this is not that sort of book we've written. We wanted to sort of show almost the full scope of T20. The team that we could have based the whole book on would have been the West Indies. Mm. And that would have been very interesting. You know, you can talk about the sort of culture of hitting. You talk about the West Indies and how they don't care about number of dot balls because the number of boundaries they hit. You can talk about Stanford as, as we do and that amazing legacy, the economics and how that's driving people to, to specialise and also the spin bowling skills of, of Narayana and Badre and slower balls with Dwayne Bravo. So that would have been interesting approach to do it all in the West Indies. I think we, we didn't do that because club cricket is such a big part of T20. And if we didn't really have much club cricket that would have kind of not showed the whole story but i guess yeah if there was a team probably west indies would have been the most interesting one to do and there's so many great characters from the caribbean you look at the impact of the champions league with trinidad really kind of a, a pioneering team really so much you could do with the, with the west indies but there's a lot of west indies in that book probably three or four chapters worth um, and that's why the west indies are sort of the the heroes of our book, if there are heroes. Let's start with the West Indies then. I think one of the most interesting people in T20 cricket on so many different levels is Chris Gale. When you were trying to tackle him for your book, what were all the different sort of things that you wanted to bring together? You think about Gale, you have kind of an icon off the field, but also not an incredible batsman, but one who's played the game in a different way. So he's not just a great player. He's a great player who has helped to change the sport. I suppose the most simple thing about Chris Gale is his his number of centuries is ridiculous. He's hit 22 centuries in T20 cricket. You know, the next most is eight. So this guy, we call him the Bradman of T20, and, and that's right. But actually understanding his style, his method was, was really interesting. So you, you know, one of the things we're seeing more and more is players starting really, really quickly. The thing about Gale is he rejects that approach. You know, he says, you know, I'm so good that I'm happy to be on 10 of 10 balls because I, I can make it up. I'm not going to run quick singles because actually the risk reward of me running a quick single doesn't make any sense. And so the, the Gale method varies a bit from innings to innings, but in general, he starts slower than most other top openers and then just accelerates in an amazing way. And his six hitting percentage is, is extraordinary. And he doesn't need to take too many singles and twos because he, he can make it up for it in different ways. And I suppose Okay, old school idea of smart batting in limited overs cricket was kind of to score a boundary and then kind of get a single off the following ball. You know, that's five of two balls and it's seen as you make it difficult for bowl. They've got to readjust to a new batsman. I think that the Gale method is more like as, as a batsman, if you have six balls at a bowler, then think how much damage you can do. So rather than kind of strike rotation being important, it's if I get enough balls at this bowler in a row, he'll have nowhere to go, basically. And one of the amazing nuggets on Gale that we found out is his value in terms of wide. So there's a wide every 35 balls in T20 cricket. But to Gale, there's one every 19 balls. So he basically gets twice as many wides as the average. And that's basically because the marge of error is, is so small. They're conscious of that. They're aware of that. They basically give him, him charity runs. And we worked out he's got something like 450 extra runs in his career compared to the average in wides and no balls. So that probably add those to his tally already, which would take him off 13 and a half thousand runs all in. I've actually, I think, 
written about that perhaps before as well. I think that wides uh, in T20 cricket should go towards the batsmen because they're the ones who've sort of caused the mistake more often than not. But you're talking about the singles and the twos. I wonder if you look at it, that when India first played four spin bowlers back in the 60s in, in England, it was because all their seamers were injured. And when the West Indies eventually went to four seam bowlers, it was after Tomo and Lily, but not straight away. It was after their spinners had been smashed around everywhere and they'd given up on their spinners to a certain extent. I wonder how much of all the way that the West Indies have started to play T20 cricket comes from the combination of two things. One is Gale's hamstrings, because essentially his hamstrings have stopped him being able to run. And he wasn't running particularly good in 2007, 2008. And quite often he would take a quick single and then clutch at the back of his leg. And the other one is wind ball. So we'll get to wind ball in a minute. But how much do you think of this is they were right place at the right time and a bunch of things came together for the West Indians. And then because it became an economic priority for them to be able to get good at this, they got good at it that way. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think about having a batsman like Gail in your team is it's not only the way he plays, he does affect everyone else because if you're a very quick runner, you know, guy who likes to score lots of ones and twos, if you're batting with Chris Gale, you can't bat in that way. And because he chews up a lot of balls, that's all opener will not work for the West Indies. So actually, in some ways, the more Gales you have, the more Gale lights that you need alongside him because he's not going to run quick signals for the other bloke. That said, I think the Trinidad team in the Champions League in 2009, which in some ways was kind of a revolutionary team in terms of they were all about boundaries, really had some amazing late order hitting from Kieran Pollard. There was a thing against New South Wales in 54 of 18 balls when he just demolishes them. And it's, it's hitting on the light we've not really seen before in T20. Anyway, but all this comes without Gale because he's not part of the Trinidad team, obviously. It's a bit more than Gale, but probably becomes more intensified as a result of Gale. Yeah, but that Trinidad team, though, if you look at them, and Pollard's a perfect example. Pollard actually plays a very Australian style of, of limited overs cricket. He keeps his wicket. He knocks the ball around for a lot more singles. Like he looks for singles far more than Gale does or some of the other big West Indian hitters have. He's always pushing very hard for twos as well, Pollard. And you think of the Trinidad team, that Trinidad team was slightly different. So it's almost like West Indies cricket has become a combination of what Gale did and what Trinidad has done. And the other thing that the Trinidad team has done over the years is it come up it's come up with a lot of random bowlers with individual skill sets that if you were to look at them in the net you would think that's not even a an elite level bowler and yet they're almost trickster bowlers aren't they you know and Narayan probably is a bit more obvious because he has a great off spinner but you know Badri and Kevon Cooper I don't know if he's a Trini boy is he do you remember he is a Trini boy Kevin Cooper. Santoki, is he Trini as well? Santoki's not, no. no. He might have played for Trini. But there's a few guys that have come through there that you look at them and you're just like, why is this a player? So I suppose my question then is, could you explain Windball and how that might have affected Trinidad cricket? Windball cricket, which is played in a few areas of the Caribbean, but is biggest in Trinidad and Tobago. Basically, you're playing with either a sort of plastic ball or a tape ball. So it's a bit lighter than a, than a cricket ball. The rules vary, but often sort of eight aside with 11 or 12 overs per team. And so in a sense, it is T20 cricket on steroids because it's shorter. The emphasis is on hitting sixes even more, which means that the players that you have, obviously are trying to hit sixes as, as much as possible, but also the bowlers have to be really smart to try and stop that. So at one point we have 
the top two bowls in the world, the T20 rankings, Sunil Narayan and Samuel Badre, they're both spinners from Trinidad, which is an, an amazing achievement. And they're very different spinners. So Badre is a leg spinner who doesn't really turn the ball a huge amount and he bowls through the power play. And he's really the first specialist spinner who will bowl through the power play. He is a, a huge sort of seminal figure in T20 cricket. And then we have Narayan, who is a, an off spinner, who more of a mystery spinner than an off spinner, at least in his, his early days. He's happy to bowl in all three phases of the game. And his, his length is, is a lot shorter than you'd get traditional length from an off spinner in, in test cricket. And these guys are just fantastic bowlers. And the training of playing in wind ball cricket, when someone's trying to hit you for six, every single ball for the boundaries are fairly short. In some ways, that means that when you play international T20 cricket, it gives you really the, the tools to deal with that. One of the difficulties that most great players have in T20 cricket, at least historically, is that the way they're trained, they're going from playing ODI cricket to T20. So it's sort of everything is shorter and they don't know how to adjust. And that's why we see batsmen probably overvaluing their wickets and stuff. Whereas West Indies and Trinidad, especially, who are the greatest region in the Caribbean, well, lots of them, they're, they're going from wind ball, 12 over a side cricket, 20 over a side cricket so they don't t20 cricket is like a slightly longer version and because most batsmen play t20 too defensively is that it's better to go from the slightly shorter game to t20 than, than the longer game and i just think the culture of wind ball you know games played for useful amounts of, of cash locally very 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 competitive you can get crowds of a couple of thousand very pressurized environment it's great preparation for, for t20 and we see even when some of these guys like Narayan and Dwayne Bravo, even after they won the World Cup in T20, they still go back and play some wind balls as well. So there's a, there's a kind of cultural feature there, which I think really does help the West Indies. It's a really interesting thing. But also, if you look at the Trinidad bowlers, so we named a bunch. I didn't mention Dwayne Bravo or Karen Pollard. So Karen Pollard's not a good bowler. Apologies if he's listening. And I don't mean that in a bad way because he doesn't have to be a good bowler. But what he is is an incredibly smart bowler. And you see the same with Dwayne Bravo. Dwayne Bravo doesn't have a lot of pace and he doesn't have any height to be able to survive. Trinidad has had that, but there's also been sort of a collection of those kinds of bowlers around the world, like someone like Harry Gurney coming along and Benny Howe, Andrew Ty, Pethla Cueo from South Africa. These sorts of guys who don't have what we would think of as traditional skills, but they have these other skills. But one of the things you talked about in the book was how bowlers are undervalued when you look at the auctions in T20 cricket. That seems bizarre to me because bowlers are I mean, other than opening batsmen, who you generally face, be involved with the most balls in a game, I would think the players who would use the second most balls would be your top four bowlers, and yet they're being underpaid. Yeah, I think about that. I think there's a few things going on here. One is definitely the sort of star factor. You see owners in franchise leagues, they're still involved, and they're excited by the, the biggest, glitziest batsmen. We see this even with Bangalore. They spend one third of their budget on AB and Kohli, Obviously, two great players, but that is an imbalance if you're going so all in on, on those two players. And we see that the owners will much more often say, make sure you get this batsman than say, make sure you get, you get this ball. So that puts a kind of artificial pressure on a little bit. There's maybe a little bit of batsmen are sexier, so they're more likely to get bums on seats in the crowd to help with sponsors and, and so on. But I think a, a lot of it is just, obviously, T20 is sort of set up to be a game of high scoring and so on. So everything's tilted in favour of the batsman. So we think of it as this is a batsman game. It's almost, almost a hitting contest. But in fact, it's the very difficulties of bowling in T20 that make it so, so valuable. There was a legacy from ODIs in the 1990s, the idea that you could kind of muddle through your fifth bowler. You know, the, the days when you would have a, a Dibley Dobler, kind of a Kiwi bowler in the middle overs getting 
one for 38 from 10 overs. And Scott you Cyrus know, is what you meant. Chris Harris. <laughs> Chris Harris was a frontline bowler. Don't ever go at Chris well, Harris. Yeah. Chris Harris is legit. Scott Cyrus has a great record, by the way, but he's the only guy you're talking about. When I talk about fifth bowlers and like trying to cheat, Chris Harris had specific skills, whereas Scott Cyrus was the quintessential batsman who might be able to get you through 10 overs in quite often, but certainly be able to get you through five or six. And we threw the ball and a pointless position, I think, in limited overs cricket. Certainly in T20 cricket, because teams obviously can go a lot harder throughout than they traditionally could in the middle overs in ODIs. Obviously, that's changed. So people kind of think it's only four overs you can kind of muddle through. So maybe you can just get by with three specialist bowls and we'll bat deep and so on. And actually, you see bowls like Andrew Simons, for instance. Yeah, he pretty really struggled in T20 cricket in the IPL because one of the, the great things about T20 is John Houghton wrote an article early on, very interesting, saying it could become a game of David Hussey's. And what he meant by this was you get, you know, good batsman, bowling, serviceable, but pretty rubbish offspin, basically. And it could be a game of these sorts of players. And that hasn't happened at all. It's more like, more like a game of specialists because whatever deficiency you have, that gets shown up so quickly in T20. There's still been teams have been a bit slow to react to this. And it's, you know, little things like, you know, your number seven only faces eight balls and innings. And yet teams will still be looking to stock up on their batting and therefore have a weaker bowling attack. But yeah, I think as, as you would agree, you know, having five balls is so important, especially as your fifth bowler or your collection of fifth bowlers, they still have to bowl a fifth of the innings, 24 balls. Whereas your fifth batsman probably isn't going to face as many balls as that. You can't model through with your fifth bowler. And that's actually the best things of T20. Any weaknesses, you do get exposed very quickly. Interesting. All that's going across the one-day cricket, I think, as well. We don't have as many fifth bowler-type bowlers as we did. And I think that's good for the game. With all respect to Scott Starris, who built a brilliant career doing what he did, we don't really want a guy who's a club bowler bowling. We, you want incredibly top-level players bowling against the best batsmen. And I think that's where T20 has pushed us, and I think that's what we will get with one-day cricket as well. From Dan Weston on Twitter the other day, that was an interesting little graphic he did. I think it was the last three years in the IPL, a number of cricketers who'd both batted an average of 12 balls and bowled an average of 12 balls in innings. And it was only three, which was Andre Russell, Hardik Pandya and Ben Stokes. So that is showing how incredibly hard it is to be a genuine all-rounder in T20 cricket. More often than not, what we call an all-rounder as a general aside, oh, he's an all-rounder. Almost no players are all-rounders in T20 cricket. So I've been making that argument for a long time. It's really, really hard to do both jobs. But I actually think there's a lot of sort of lower-level all-rounders that play in some of the leagues that aren't getting a go who'd be quite interesting players, like random names like JJ Smuts, for instance, who actually are legitimate all-rounders. And we end up playing players a bit more like Anton Devsic, who bowls very, very infrequently. The way that we're thinking about all those things has changed. Let's just take a complete sideways step. One of the other things that I know you're obsessed with and you know I've always been really interested in is drug testing in cricket because we didn't really do it for that long. 2017 was the first ICC event where we did blood testing. Is, is that right? Does that sound right to you? That is right, which is kind of nuts. But that's good because up until 2017, no drug had ever been invented that could only be found in blood testing. So it was lucky that cricket just happened to get that date perfect, Wigmore. I think it's lucky that all cricketers are so noble and pure that they would never think of taking anything performance enhancing. It is a really interesting thing. I think that over the next 10 years, we'll be hearing more and more about the fact that basically you can't have sporting authorities in charge of these things already. That's why WADA was such an important thing. And I think we'll eventually have something similar with corruption and cheating. 
there's no reason for the MLB to find Houston Astros guilty of sign stealing because it actually hurts their brand. The same way is it doesn't help the ICC to catch cricketers tampering with the ball or match fixing, really, because again, it hurts their brand. You almost have to take that away. But as it stands, cricket has is so far behind drug testing. And I don't think they really understood, and I'll say this, I didn't really understand how much drugs can actually help. I'd never really thought about the fact that if you've got a fast bowler and you want them to be bowling over 90 miles an hour in their fourth spell of a day in a test match, that obviously there are many drugs that can help with that. And I think T20 cricket has probably elevated all that because of the power side of things. Yeah, because of the power side of things and also because of, of private investment potentially and the insecure lifestyle for players. It's not if you, if you get a gig in one league and you do badly, you can get a lot more. And if you also, the flip side of that is if you do badly in one league, that can damage you in, in future leagues. So the kind of brutality of it as a freelance player, which I think is more than, you know, if you had a national central contract, certainly that can kind of encourage players as well. And also just the quality of testing from league to league is, is very shoddy. So we had like the Canadian League a few years ago when I had Dave Warner and Steve Smith didn't do a single drug test in the entire competition. Even a league like the PSL, you don't have more than 30 drug tests a year. Bangladesh Premier League did no drug tests at all in the first three years. And that was at a time when it was possibly the second best playing league in the world. So the kind of ecosystem in cricket is very haphazard in terms of drug testing. There's no unified joined up thinking. The ICC does, does some work, but it's focused on the, the top eight ODI teams. Overall, I was looking, there's 19 times more tests in baseball in the US than in cricket around the world. In Major League Baseball, each player tested about 10 times a year. In T20 cricket, there's you know about two-thirds of a drug tests per year per player. And of course, not only that, but players know there's great quarters of the year when they have absolutely minimal chance of being tested. They're national anti-doping drug agencies. Cricket is not a priority. So basically, there's plenty of chances to dope when you have minimal chance of being caught, and then you can then go into the more prestigious tournaments when if you do get tested, you wouldn't fail a test. This is a sort of ticking time moment in cricket, um, and I think those incentives are, are massive, massive to dope. The kind of the risk-reward makes doping a very attractive option for players, and I think sport doesn't, still doesn't really realise what the benefits could be and, and the dangers, and I think a lot of that is is a bit of a kind of gentlemen's kind of nonsense in cricket i think a lot of it is seeing it through looking at other formats and where there'd be less obvious benefits than in t20 where what you'd gain from doping is massive and as you said if you're turning a boat into it's sort of mishits go from being caught on the boundary to going over the ropes that happens three or four times a season extra in a, in a league well that can make him a far far more valuable player around the world interesting i remember geez it must be seven, eight years ago, talking to a former cricketer who's also worked in the media quite a bit. And, you know, I was sort of saying to him, it would make sense that drugs would now be in cricket because if you take general batting away, because at that stage, you know, T20 cricket hadn't quite taken over the way it had. But if you look at bowling, it makes sense. And you can understand why from an endurance point of view, from a strength point of view, all those sorts of things, if you have to train less as well, which is quite important when you're on those sorts of performance enhancing drugs. And this guy was saying, you don't have to do that. It's a game of skill. And I said, yeah, but isn't it better if you can practice those skills at your top speed the whole time? We haven't really got to that point. And golf's another sport where I think they're just starting to realize that there might be problems there. So it's not just a cricket thing, but it is, I think, far more prevalent than we know. But cricket is blind to it. And it's not the only sport. NFL's a bit like that too, isn't it? I think NFL is not tested as much or 
traditionally hasn't been tested as much. And there's a few sports around the world that don't test for blood. So it's not that cricket's on its own. I think with the freelance nature of cricket and how much hand-to-mouth a lot of these new T20 players are on, I just think it's a huge thing that maybe hasn't been uh, thought about or if it has been thought about, they're just turning their head to it. I mean, what did you think? Did you think it's cricket thinking that it doesn't have a problem or do you think it's people going, don't want to poke that hornet's nest? All your arguments about you know the game of skill and stuff, that's exactly what they were saying in baseball in 2000 and became apparent that maybe a fifth of the league would, were doing drugs. So cricket sort of clings to these old arguments that are kind of a comfort blanket for it because the way cricket is run, very fragmented as a sport. So there are these issues which everyone kind of leaves to everyone else. The boards to lead to the ICC, the ICC, they lead to the boards and then the boards, national anti-doping agencies... And sort of no one takes it by the horns. And I think that does happen in cricket. I don't know how common it is in cricket, but it's few cases a year. It's certainly a lot more prevalent than, than that. Mm. The resources given to this sort of stuff are limited. And because and cricket's had so many problems with match fixing, it sort of put everything into, into that pot and left very little over for anti-drugs testing. I think that's probably part of the problem as well. So a sport like baseball, they haven't really had match fixing in the same way that cricket's had. And they've had drugs instead. But I think it might not be either or with cricket. <laughs> a couple of other things I wanted to talk about. One is Ganguly. The whole original Kolkata franchise in T20 is absolutely fascinating to me, the way it all came about. You know, it's gone on to be a great franchise, but, it, you know, when it first started off, it just seemed so random. Take us through the Ganguly story and how he ended up not being Kolkata's favorite son. Well, not being the Kolkata Knight Rider's favorite son. So Ganguly, obviously a huge icon from Test Cricket, former Indian captain. So obviously Kolkata wanted him and they got him as an icon player in 2008. And for the first three years, he captained them and they were comfortably the worst team in the IPL. They were pretty hopeless playing. They didn't really have a style of play, but Ganguly basically, he didn't score enough runs and he scored them too slowly. And at the end of 2010, after the first season of the IPL, they appointed Venki Mysal as CEO um, Benke educated in the US, uh, made his money in insurance. So he kind of comes in with a cold, unsentimental view and he looks at Ganguly and actually realizes that the huge amount they're paying for him, terrible, terrible value because he's, he's not really a T20 player, as good a player as he has been before and as iconic as he is in Kolkata. So basically, they go to the auction in 2011 and their strategy has been disastrous and they try and tear everything up. So they don't, they don't, they don't retain any players before the auction. And there's this moment where the auctioneer kind of says, Sir of Ganguly, and he keeps saying, former Indian captain, Sir of Ganguly, and there's still just this really awkward silence. Great in your batsman, Ganguly, yeah, still nothing. Basically, they, they don't get him. No no one gets him, and there's a, there's a huge backlash. People are saying they won't come to Kolkata games anymore. There's a no Ganguly, no KPR campaign. People take it incredibly seriously. They start investing in T20 players. Meanwhile, Ganguly goes to Pune Warriors and he's pretty hopeless. He averages 17 in two years with a strike rate of under 100, which is which is rubbish. Not ideal. Not ideal. That is match losing innings there, left, right and centre. And so basically from this, this new strategy that leads Kolkata to two IPL ties in the next four seasons, one of the first teams along with Chennai to kind of recognise the value of spinning T20s so they bowl a lot of, of spin to give them advantage and they just they sign T20 players obviously Andre Russell is who signed 2014 and kind of yeah and around a few years earlier but their approach is it, they properly recognise that it's not just a shorter version of cricket they kind of treat it as a whole different sport and they don't care about how good someone is in, in test cricket they develop a sort of 
scouting system and, and so on. So they get Koldi Yadav from the, the scouting system. So they're one of the first teams to take a smarter approach to, to the auction. And that works out extremely well for them. And the, the Ganguly story, it's just a little sign of, if you apply old cricket thinking to T20, it's a road to nowhere. And I think the more teams can recognize that, generally the, the better for them. Yeah, I think it was also a very important thing for the Indian Premier League because early on, there are a lot of old legends sort of toddling about, some well beyond their best, players who've played when they haven't been fully fit, like, you know, poor Yuvraj at times, probably shouldn't be out on the field and, you know, kept getting re-signed despite the fact he maybe wasn't ready to play again. So it's very interesting that that still exists in an era when other teams are thinking about it a completely different way. You have a chapter in the book about the IPL specifically about Bangalore versus Chennai. Freddie would have worked for Bangalore with Crickviz, wouldn't he? It's about around the same time I did. Is that right? I think it is, yeah. Yeah, so I was an unpaid consultant. I did it for free because it was such a shambles. I didn't want to take a paycheck from them. Anyway, the whole thing was crazy. They had their own analytics department. They had Crickviz. I was there and they had Joe Harris as well. So it was such a weird time and so unprofessionally run, despite the fact that they had the best intentions. That feels like Bangalore RCB in a nutshell, doesn't it? They have the best intentions and they really do try hard. It's just that almost everything they have done, VJ Malia or their new owners, has been comically wrong. They are the joke of the IPL because of having the batting Galacticos. They've got AB and Co. They used to have Gail and Shane Watson as well. So they look such an exciting team, but they've, they're kind of like a guy on Football Manager who just gets strikers that they like around the world and forget to get any defenders. Yeah, Bangalore are kind of the cricket equivalent. So they just forget to buy bowlers, basically. And this happens again and again and again. So there was a you know famous game I was at when they home to Chennai in 2018 and ended up they signed Corey Anderson who's really a batting all round I mean he's one of those guys who's almost not really an all rounder to join he's, he's a batsman who can bowl a bit they use him as a, as a death bowler which is you know you have 12 million US dollars to have a ability 20 team you shouldn't be using Corey Anderson at, at the death so they just make these mistakes again and again they overreact to defeat so that they make almost twice as many changes after defeat as Chennai do and they sort of don't almost recognise the randomness that's kind of inherent in T20 cricket. So they overreact to defeats in sort of search of this perfect, perfect formula. They go all in on batting, so they just don't have enough bowlers. The way they sign overseas players is not very well structured, so they often buy eight overseas players who are all fairly good, which sounds smart, but what that means is you're spending a lot of money on players who you don't intend to play. Mm. So they're just they're not using those resources very cleverly. Um, and that was a famous thing. So they were bowled out in 2017 by KPR for 49. And then the next auction, by accident, really, they ended up signing all four bowls from that KPR bowling attack. There's just something not quite right in how they go about it. But the, yeah, the, the biggest lessons is you cannot have a top T20 team if you're bowling. It's not up to scratch. And although Bangalore have good batting, albeit concentrated around a, f- a few players, their bowling is just consistently not to scratch at all. And I suppose also, I think a growing thing in T20 will be teams really using home advantage in a smart way. We've seen this with Chennai in the IPL. We've seen this with Guyana in the Caribbean, where, you know, that pitch has, has ragged a lot. And Guyana have often bowled 12, 15 overs of spin. So that's it, real getting a home advantage. I think, actually, if you have a very flat wicket, it's hard to have a real home advantage. But in Bangalore, there's basically been no advantage at all to, to playing at home another problem that they've had but just in terms of continuity really so we see with Chennai they've really kept a core together season after season so they all know each other's roles and knowing where they where they fit in Bangalore it's a much more insecure environment 
I think they've used the most players in the IPL and that just lends itself to sort of insecurity, maybe playing a bit for yourself and just not knowing exactly what you're trying to do. They'll go from playing two overseas bowlers in one game to playing none in the next game. The way they use players has not been very badly. So a good example was Shimon Hetman last season. You know, they gave him four innings at the start of the season, which he struggled, but he's batting the Lord, which is a very tricky role and then they discard him and he, he comes back at the end and gets 75 in his, his last game and again with Chennai you know Shane Watson's often had seasons where he's struggled at the start but they kept faith with him and he's come good in the, the knockout stages so I think T20 the kind of the importance of roles and knowing your role is, is massive and Bangalore they kind of overreact to defeats and that ends up with a situation where no one really knows what they're doing and that's a, a road to nowhere. I remember talking to I think it was George Bailey, maybe even Dirk Nannis years ago when they played for Chennai, asking about their theories and how they go about things. And they're both sort of saying, look, essentially what they do is they find role players, even if it's Matthew Hayden. His role is that we think he can play all 10 games and open the batting. And if it's George Bailey, we want a number five batsman or a number four batsman who can come in at any time. And we know that we'll, you know, score 20 to 25 at a strike rate of 130. We know that. He's going to do that when a local player can't do that. Those sorts of roles were the sorts of things that I looked at. It's really interesting. I mean, there's two ways of looking at it. It's either specialization or it's role playing. But either way, it's a very similar thing. And if you can get that and you understand that, you know, Hardik Pandya, for instance, you said before he faces more than 12 balls in innings and he bowls more than 12 balls in innings. But you also know, and you have to know coming in, that Hardik Pandya bowling more than 12 balls in innings can't bowl all the way through the innings. He's not going to be particularly good in the power play. He might be able to squeeze you one over in the depth. So you have to know that at least two of his overs, probably three, if you're being realistic, and I think he bowls the most overs of any seamer in the middle overs of the IPL. You have to know coming in that that is where his overs are going to fit. Bangalore went perfect example, and I've worked with other teams as well. They don't really understand how the teams fit together. And it's as simple as that in some cases. Partly it's because maybe people haven't moved with the times, but it's also, it's a new format of cricket and it's actually hard to understand how all these different players do fit into a team. Yeah, that's definitely true. But I think the more your team sticks together, like your core, then you're fitting very specific players. So if Chandler from season to season will have mm. eight or nine players that are locked starters, basically, and then they know the very specific players that they're trying to fill in around them. Whereas with Bangalore, it often feels like they start a team sheet with A, B, we have Vera, and the rest is kind of work out as we go along, which means they can get loads of players with overlapping skills and, and then just have shortages in other areas because they're just sort of getting a load of players who all seem pretty good and just fits them together. And it doesn't fit well to the lessons some of their parts. And um, with Chennai, the way that Chennai have used local players and local players who are not necessarily international class, at least in, in T20 in a very smart way. That's been the centre of their success and what Bangalore have not done. So um, with Badranath, who was a kind of a classical batsman, they used him as a floating anchor. So he would sometimes he'd come in at, at three or four and bat very sensibly and, and that would set it up the innings for later. Or if the channel were going well, they just wouldn't need to, to bat him at all. And so we see with the Chennai, they're, they're a smart team in terms of thinking of their batting order in terms of roles rather than fixed positions. I mean, we still see too many teams think in terms of he's a number three, he's a number four. But with Chennai, they're one of the first teams to not do that. So in their victories in the IPL finals in 2010 and 2011, you know, they shuffle a lot of their batting orders. So we see Albie Morkel comes in at six, then he comes in at five the next year. Donny comes in at five, then he comes in at three. And we have Badranath moving around as, as well. So the, the whole point of that is 
it's set up for the situation. I think to get that kind of selfless culture, it does help a lot to have a team who are used to playing together. Otherwise, because T20 is a very insecure world. Franchise is a very insecure, with especially IPL, where their salaries are tied to how much they, they play even from game to game that culture can be very, very difficult because kind of everyone wants to play the glitzy innings because that's what they're going to get remembered by. And a team like Bangalore, you can be dropped at any moment. You want to play that innings to keep you in your round for a little bit longer. So yeah, Bangalore are kind of a, a lesson in what not to do. Of course, remember, we, we should emphasize that the whole point of the IPL is it's set up like NFL or something to ensure competitive balance. You have both a salary cap and a minimum spend per team. So every team should broadly be as good as, as each other. Yes, yeah, so Bangalore's, you know, not lucked any resources. They've just spent the money very, very badly. There's a whole chapter in your book on A.V. de Villiers. Is that right? There is a whole chapter, how he embodies the journey that batting's taken. Because he's a player who rejects, you think of the sort of trade-offs in, in batting, especially T20, between, say, boundary percentage and dot ball percentage. And A.V. Is able to kind of avoid these as, as well as possible. So he kind of has a destructiveness of, of Chris Gale, but he's also got like Donny, he can score for every ball, scamper between the wickets and, and so on. So he's a template for the future of batting in that it's not about one or the other, it's about one and the other one. Mm. He's a very interesting player, A.B. De Villiers, in that I almost feel like when he finishes his career, we might not still know everything that we ever needed to know about him. I remember you writing a piece years ago about him struggling with playing T20s within South Africa. You look at his one-day record at times and you realise that how much of his record is from absolutely smashing a handful of teams. Not to say he's not a brilliant one-day cricketer because he's still one of the greatest one-day cricketers of all time. But he seems to be a player who I'm not sure we'll ever get the most out of. And if there's any player who, because of the changing nature of world cricket, we've been cheated from more. I'm not sure if it's him. I mean, he doesn't play that many leagues, so you don't see him play that often. He's been in and out of the South African setup and, you know, might come back if they play that uh, World T20. For years, didn't really do that much in Test cricket, famously until Smith had, had a big go of it. He feels like he's a moment of evolution of cricket where he's maybe the most developed player that we've ever had in all sort of formats of batting. But he's also maybe a completely honest representation of where cricket is, which is a bit muddled and maybe not as great as it should be because it's kind of a bit messy at the moment. Yeah, so you see with AB in South Africa, they use him to basically to cover up other holes. So he doesn't bat in any position more than five innings in a row in his whole career. And he just, just keeps going up and down, up and down. And there's a moment before the um, World Cup of 2016 when South Africa say, you know, AB is our guy to open the innings. We decided that a while ago. To change that would be a sign of panic, you know. And two games later, then moving him down the order again. And he also become wedded to this idea in 2014, Los Domingo, that AB can only come out to bat in the last half of the innings. Their plans for him to come out in the 11th over every time and it doesn't really work either. So they almost use data in a kind of bad way. They kind of overcomplicate things with AB. Personally, I think quite simple, but you look at AB and just say he should bat at three or four every innings. Probably don't overcomplicate that. But yeah, his T20 record is, is averages 25. So it's weirdly mediocre, really. And I think he's used very badly. It's only actually from 2015, 2016, where his T20 batting goes to a different plane and, and a lot of that comes from a more settled role, generally batting at four in the IPL. Yeah, it's certainly, you know, you talk to players and they always sort of say AB stands out at the very best. But again, we have a situation where he doesn't win any trophies. So he's, I think he's won one T20 trophy, which is South African domestic, the Mazanzi League, I think in his whole career. Obviously, he's been part of that Bangalore team, which won anything. South Africa never really came close to winning a, a T20, World T20 during his time either. 
don't know. It, it's a funny one. You, you could look at it a few ways. So one of it is that in franchise cricket, because he's obviously so good and he's, he's both very good and he's got the kind of wider star power. Maybe if you buy AB de Villiers, certainly IPL, you end up paying even more than he's actually worth. You know, so you can't get him for good value. So you end up with the RCB problem of not having enough money left over for, for bowlers. I think in recent seasons, there's been a big problem where AB, because he's so good, has basically said, I'm happy to come to the Big Bash for five or six games and I'm going home. And then teams spend a lot of money on this guy to come for five or six games. And it, you get a player like AB and then you can't replace him afterwards. And so you end up in a situation where your team is very imbalanced and he has to kind of come and win you three games in six, which is not realistic even for a player as, as good as he is. And then he leaves before the, the knockout. So that's a few things that are going on. But it's certainly, it's a bit perplexing. He's such a great player. His T20 trophy cabinet is basically empty. It's very interesting. Well, it's a very good book, Cricket 2.0. It's a great title, Wigmore, whoever came up with that. What a genius that human being must be. But Yeah, they must have a very good podcast. Yeah, they must. Anyway, it's funny that you've never given me any uh, any copy of the sales there. But anyway, that's fine. Thank you very much for coming on. The book's still out in print. And uh, who's going to buy this book in print? Let's be honest. This is a Kindle book. This is modern book. In fact, it should be a YouTube channel where just you and Freddie just speak out the words. We've had a lot of extracts, so many that you probably could read half the book in extract <laughs> form. But we do hope you buy the bloody book because we think it's good and it did win the Wisdom Book of the Year. It's interesting to write. It was lovely that you could finish the podcast by talking about the award that you won. Thanks for coming on. Cheers. Thank you for listening. You can follow my guest at Tim Wig on Twitter. I am also on the Twitter. Please review on Apple Podcasts or on each individual platform that you use. This helps us massively. This series is brought to you by Patreon. Thank you so much to all the people who already support us on Patreon. If you can afford it, Please go over to Patreon and help support us, I suppose is what I'm saying. Thanks to the many who do. Red Inker is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston is the man who fixes your ears. And the theme tune is by the Red Crickets. Red Inker listener. Don't forget to also subscribe and listen to Double Century, a podcast where I trawl through old newspaper reports and bitter books from former players to tell the story of our great game. Find Double Century in your podcast apps.